Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Vodak. I'm here with Tarek Weeks. Tarek, how are you? I'm doing well. Did I say it right? I don't know if I've asked you the pronunciation. Uh, yes, it's Tarek. Great. And we met, I guess I, I attended a panel that you were a panelist on, and it was hosted by Generation 180, which was started by former podcast guest, Sandy Reisky. And you were a bunch of panelists talking about the future of aviation if it's going to be without fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. And this is something regular listeners know I haven't flown since 2016. And uh, I also have a background in physics, so I get a bit of, of what's possible, what's not possible, but you know a lot more. So if you don't mind, I'm going to read a little bit from your bio. Mm-hmm. So you're an aeronautical engineer, and mm-hmm. now you specialize in design and testing unmanned aerial systems. Mm-hmm. You've won a bunch of awards, right? I think that you've made some designs that were um, yes. very highly regarded. So we got an idea design award. We also got a good uh, design, like ecological design award. We have basically over the last few years been designing a hybrid electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicle. So a lot of the awards are related to that concept as well as how that system operates in the world. Now, I'm most interested in hearing about manned flight and and transportation for people, but let's take a second. So the, the designs that won the award are for bringing... Like maybe there's a place where there's a flood and we have to get supplies. Is mm-hmm. is that about right? Did you have a um, vertical takeoff can take off from without a runway and can deliver things? Can you say more about what? Yeah. So the concept between of the LRA or Chaparral is that it is a vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. So it's VTOL uh, is is the acronym you commonly hear. The idea is that the vehicle can pick up a payload autonomously. So there are sensors on board. Uh, there's a robotic system. It could go over, pick up a package. So this is 300 pounds of items inside of a payload pod. It could take off with very little inf- infrastructure, transition into forward flight for wingborne flight, transition back and land 300 miles away and deposit that payload. Idea behind it is that it could do back and forth trips as well as uh, longer one-way trips, and we could trade things like fuel for payload to optimize the vehicle. So I think the key thing there is that the hybrid electric concept of it, so we are using batteries for short-term power for takeoff and landing, and then fuel for the cruise portion of flight. And what that basically means is that we're able to cruise on wings, which are more efficient than cruising on rotors. And I could get into why that's more efficient than the other and why we're using a hybrid approach versus an all-electric approach for that range. I'm curious at the top level, Elroy Air, where you work, Mm -hmm. is the purpose of the company just this one thing or is it electric flight in general or, or hybrid flight in general? So the purpose of the company is effectively a Uh, we want to provide efficient logistics, right? So when we say logistics, I'm talking about middle miles. So distribution warehouse to distribution warehouse or a hub to a location that's somewhere remote that doesn't have as many resources for the aircraft operation. So what Elroy Air is, is that we're, deploying the newer technologies, the electric and hydroelectric propulsion, the control systems, the robotic systems, and that we've seen at a smaller scale with some of the cargo and delivery drones uh, you've seen from various companies over the last 10 years. And we're increasing that scale and increasing the scope so that we could serve a a broader audience there. All right. That's understood. So you guys are at the forefront of of major advances in many different areas. I mean, this is in yep. small motors, this is in batteries, this is yeah. in dynamics. There are a lot of, <laughs> there are a lot of uh, systems within the overall vehicle. We have flight autonomy, so it's unmanned. So we, one of the ways that the vehicle would be more efficient is that you're not, it's a small aircraft, but you're not carrying a pilot around. So you could use that weight that you're using to carry a pilot around to actually carry more load. Uh, in a smaller package, there are electric motors. So we are, uh, we have to integrate the latest propulsion systems into our vehicle. 
So over the last five years, personally, I've seen big advances in terms of the performance as well as the integration of those electric motors. So when I started four and a half years ago, they were blowing up all the time. <laughs> Not what I want to hear from, an, from a designer. Were, yeah, no, seriously, they were, they, this is the first thing I worked on and they've improved drastically over the years as the companies who are doing this have all grown together. Mm-hmm. There are things like the battery systems. So you have to power all of this, right? So you could either have a transmission to an engine, which is mechanically complex, and the transmission could fail to power your vertical flight. So you can imagine a helicopter auto-rotating. And for listeners out there, auto-rotation is effectively when you have an engine failure or transmission failure in a helicopter, it could glide down on the rotor system. But that assumes the rotor system could still work, right? So one of the principles is that we have multiple rotors and Uh one of those could fail and it could be a little safer in these emergency conditions. So there's a battery that that is kind of like the baseline backup to a fuel system. And that is difficult. I could talk about not specifics of our battery system, but how some of the learnings kind of apply to the current crop of probably aircraft that are going to eventually service you and I, right? And then finally, there is the hybrid electric propulsion system and then also the the actual airframe itself, right? So you have to have a power plant with a generator powering all this. And then the aircraft, the configuration, how you put everything together to accomplish a goal needs to be different because the requirements that you're building the vehicle around are simply simply did not exist before uh, we had all these newer technologies. So there's a lot to figure out and it's it's been a ton of fun uh <laughs> that's four and a half years. I was gonna ask about the the process of doing it because usually I think of engineering like you're pushing the limit on one thing, but not everything. So if you're pushing yes. if you're developing, I'm sure not every aspect of it, but a lot of them, that means your suppliers, your yes. uh, buyers, and also the internal team, you must have, I would guess, you're the, what's your title? Chief engineer? Yes. So that means, I would think that is more, at first I would have thought that's doing a lot of engineering yourself, but it must be a lot of teamwork and, and getting people together from various areas. Yeah. And I think one of the key things here is that the the scope of the project has grown beyond everything I could remember, right? So <laughs> so there's a lot of collaboration between different, I would say, systems owners or domain experts. And then there, there's a lot of integration of systems. Uh, there are companies that try to design everything from the ground up. And there are companies that collaborate with other companies through agreements and whatnot. We're closer to the latter category. So we have a smaller, scrappier team that is we're reaching out to people, we're working with others in the industry for many of the technologies, but also we have to have the ability to design things like the overall architecture, be able to understand the performance of the things that we put together. So there are a lot of smart people in our small team, and we're also rapidly growing. So we're hiring, (laughs) we're hiring a lot currently, and that's that is taking up probably 30, 40% of a lot of people's time is just getting more people, people. people yeah. Yeah. Getting more people in because we have a lot to do. Well, I got this podcast if that was an offer, but I'm sure there are listeners who are interested. <laughs> oh yeah. So <laughs> if you are good at assembling systems, if you are a electrical uh, engineer, if you are aerospace, you are interested in hybrid electric or electric aviation and you think that you have something to contribute, a unique skill that you can contribute to a project like this, yeah, look at look at our careers page. We have a lot of, we have many fun uh, positions opening up and you'll get to 
touch these systems hands-on. So and create them. Yeah. Yeah. And create them. You will, you'll get to create something that didn't exist before you, you got to it. It was funny because when I was thinking of, it's a probably competitive field right now, but early enough that the growth, I bet from a competitive standpoint, you and your competitors, whatever competitors ever has, you're probably growing the market more than you are dividing up the market. But I bet that you're competing more in people because probably getting great people is probably the biggest thing. Yeah, that's actually that's actually a very good point. We are in the cargo cargo category for for these systems. So there are a lot of systems in the market that are design are being designed for passenger flight. And where where the company I work at is is at is that they are firmly for cargo, and uh, the aircraft is designed for cargo. So you have many efficiencies that you get out of that. So there are benefits to the ultimate end user versus taking a passenger eVTOL that may not carry as much for how much airplane you have or may not be as efficient for ground operations. And there are benefits to using a bespoke solution for what you're trying to accomplish. I'm going to use your talking about passengers to transition over to talking about passenger flight. Mm -hmm. And my putting my cards out, my view a while ago was there was the Wright brothers a long time ago, and anyone looking at what they did could not possibly have imagined a 747. And yet we got to, well, past 747s. And yeah. so today, looking at the, the first battery-powered flight, well, if we can't imagine what will come, so naturally we'll get something like a 747, but it'll be battery powered. Mm-hmm. And it's just a matter of, we got to keep the engineering going. But then the more that I would look at physics, like Tom Murphy's a um, past guest and he's got this textbook on energy. And it seems like we're not where the Wright brothers were. And they were on the cusp of, of nothing. There was not, I mean, th- there was a completely new field. There was no heavier than air flight at the time. Now we're, we're pretty mature and there are physical limits. And I started to conclude from my research, which is much less than yours, that we're not going to get to be able to fly great distances with flying great numbers of people. And one of the big reasons I wanted to talk to you was to find out from someone who knows a lot more than I do of, are we going to have flight? Are we just, are we going to have what we have now, except batteries powering everything instead of fossil fuels? Or are we never going to fly across the Pacific? Or these are the questions that come to mind to me. I suspect a lot of people have that view of the Wright Brothers to 747 type of thing. Like we just have to, we will get this. Yeah. So I will just talk through a little bit of the the vehicle design process, right? So you could create conceptual designs of an aircraft and then there's some maturation to to suss out the technologies, you start going through some detail, you start designing the components, and then you eventually build that. Where we are right now is that you cannot conceptually design an airplane that's fully battery that gets at, at the kind of scales of like a Boeing. So like we're talking 90, 90 tons, like 90,000 kilograms. How many people? We're talking like a hundred and so if we're a vehicle that size is about 130 people, right? Okay. So let's say this 130 passenger hypothetical airplane, you can't get very far on on just batteries. And and there there are a couple of reasons for that. There are just the requirements that we have put on ourselves for air travel. So we want we want the airplane to fly fast. We also wanted the vehicle to fly for a long time. So like your Boeing of that size could do 35, so basically 4,000 miles. And you have aircraft that are, that are doing almost twice that, that could do trans-Pacific, basically literally go from one point in the world to another point in the world. So there's just, there are a couple of reasons for that. There's one, the configuration of the airplane. So how efficient the aircraft is per mile, right? So if you think about your 737 
you could, there are different sources for this, but let's say it's about a hundred miles per gallon per seat. Right. And your Sienna van, right. That will get you about 30 miles per gallon for a van that seats seven, six or seven adults. You could kind of understand that these aircraft will burn a lot of fuel for uh, a given distance per distance per passenger. And you run into this problem where electric aircraft roughly have the same range as their electric car counterparts. We don't see the kind of range. You don't see electric airplane being designed for much further ranges than the, their car counterparts. So that's like four or 500 miles. Yeah. Four or 500 miles. And then when you talk about a vertical takeoff and landing airplane, you have other things that reduce the range further. You have the lift system. So even if the, the rotors tilt forward, you have more surface area than you need. <laughs> so that creates drag and drag is power. And then you also have to carry around a lot of other equipment that aren't needed for cruising. So effectively, there are multiple reasons here. I think the first one I would uh, talk about is the power required. So as you scale the vehicle, the vehicle needs to take off faster and faster, and you require more power. So your average battery cell, so your high energy battery cell, wants to be discharged over two, maybe three hours. Mm -hmm. If you're designing something that big, your battery cell needs to be discharged over the course of 45 minutes. And there are a lot of thermal issues uh, relating to that. Mm -hmm. So if you're designing something like that around your current battery technology, we'd have to talk about reducing the speed of those vehicles such that we could, could actually power them, right? So no one's making 30 or 40 megawatt. <laughs> it sounds crazy to say that. 30 <laughs> or 40 megawatt propulsion systems. And you need to fly slower just to be able to power the thing. And then, yeah, there, there are multiple factors here. Then there's just the energy density of the battery. So the current set of batteries are about 300 watt hours per kilogram. So you would need... If you're talking about 400 miles ish to get to <laughs> to that 4,000 number, are you chuckling because it's like so out there? Yeah, it's it's a it's a full order of magnitude. So I'm probably if I'm getting this picture that fossil fuel to get a battery to have a whole lot of juice in it, and then to get the juice from it into the motion of the plane fast, these are two separate problems that like fossil fuels are fantastic at. Right, they have a huge high energy density, and they are explosive. So you can yeah. get the energy out really fast. And batteries, these are two of the major problems. Yes, exactly. So And they overheat. Exactly. So one of the things with batteries, imagine you're, you're increasing this by, I was saying, an order of magnitude. So you're making the cell smaller for the same amount of power. It's an electrical circuit, right? So there's resistance from one terminal of the battery to the other terminal of the battery. And if you go and just multiply that by <laughs> multiply that by 10 or or some some factor, you have a heating problem, right? So you have to take all this heat and you have to put it somewhere. And then you also have this other problem where the battery cell is it's a chemical battery. So you have a flammable substance on one side, flammable substance on the other side. And these things could combust. So if you take the amount of energy in a cell and you multiply it by 10, you start running into this problem where there's just more material to combust in a smaller package. And there, there are people working on this. So there are things like solid state batteries. There are people working on different chemistries. There are people working on batteries that instead of having the oxidizer in the cell, it's pulling the, the oxidizer from the air. So it's more like you're using fuel and then you're keeping the, the byproducts on the vehicle. But back in, I was reading a paper recently, back in 2012 or 2013, folks were saying that the batteries that we'll have today would be pushing, commonly that we have today or available for vehicles would be pushing 400, 500 watt hours per kilogram. And we're still, we're not, we're 50% lower than what they were saying 10 years ago. So yeah, it's, it's a challenge. 
so I want to get ahead to what we were talking about last time was my picture was to get across the Atlantic. So I'm in New York. So I'm looking at the Eiffel Tower. Yep. And the plane's not going to make it that far. At yeah. least not with one person. In it, not at least not with a hundred people in it. No, and it will not make it even if you made a smaller aircraft, or even if you made an aircraft with just batteries on board. Right. So these things, you could. There's a physical limit based off of the type of airplane and the amount of cells you could fit in the volume of that type of airplane. Mm-hmm. That kind of peters out past that 500 mile number. Uh, I don't want to specifically cite it because it's very heavily configuration dependent, mm-hmm. but you, you're you not going to make it very far on just purely batteries. Just simply, you just don't have enough energy in the, the aircraft to get it that far. And then your aircraft itself is not efficient enough to use that energy over such a long distance. So last time we were talking about makeshifts or things that could bridge the gap, such as Greenland. Uh, but first, mm-hmm. I also want to check people listening probably are thinking, well, there's hydrogen and fuel cells there. Yep. Maybe ethanol. Are mm-hmm. these things that, that uh, make any sense? Yeah. So I could talk to a couple, couple fuels here. There's hydrogen, right? So hydrogen is very energy dense per weight. But when you go to apply it to an aircraft, you have a lot of things such as the tanks. So you're talking about 50, 75 megapascal. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure tanks to fit all that hydrogen in your airplane. Or you have things like cryogenic tanks. So you're increasing the pressure and reducing the temperature of the hydrogen so much that it's so close to zero that it liquefies. Literally the lightest element is liquefying and you're keeping it in a tank and you're trying to keep it cold over the length of the length of the mission. So that's hard, right? So you saw the, you saw <laughs> the, laugh at that understatement. It, you know, <laughs> you saw the space shuttle, right? Like the space shuttle had this big orange tank and all that orange on it was foam. You could imagine that they've had incidents with that. They're more, more reliable systems now, but it's a big challenge. And the production of hydrogen is also tough because you have electrolysis and you have uh, reformation. So electrolysis, you take an electrical current, uh, you apply it to usually like a proton exchange membrane. So like a PEM membrane. So it splits the hydrogen and oxygen from each other. Oxygen goes to one side, hydrogen goes to the other. You take the hydrogen, compress it, you store it. And that is, those systems, I think, are around 60 or 70% efficient. So you put that much energy in, you get 6 or 70% of the energy out. There's something called reformation. So reformation, this might get into the political arena a little bit, but we have a great infrastructure for creating natural gas. So effectively, what you do with reformation is that you take natural gas, you stick it with some steam, you create heat, you get carbon monoxide, you get hydrogen, and then you do another process that now you're <laughs> you're taking that carbon monoxide and you're getting some more hydrogen off of it and you're taking that carbon off of the off of there and you're producing CO2. So methane or natural gas is four hydrogen, one carbon. That one carbon could go off into the air. So some circles, people were talking about things like doing that at a site where you have a well, you pump all that CO2 that you did in your reformation process, you pump it down to that well, and now you have zero emission. You have a zero emission fuel, which is like a great way to transition an economy that is doing gas and, and oil and all these other things. And I think there is where people might have some disagreements about whether or not we should be using fossil fuels or whether or not that is realistic. If that's feasible. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then you have biofuels. Okay. So let me, so wrapping up hydrogen, you can store energy in hydrogen, Yep. but you got to store it. And so the, the mechanics of storing it can weigh the airplane down a lot. Yeah. The mechanics of storing it could wear the airplane down a lot. And then you're also using a lot more energy to produce that. So for a battery, 
he could conceivably have a propulsion system that some publicly uh, cited numbers, people are talking about their motors doing 95%, people talk about 90%, and then you have uh, some small loss on the battery, right? So 90, 95% on the battery. Uh, whereas hydrogen, you every time you you convert electricity into hydrogen or vice versa, you're losing 30 or 40% of the energy there. Okay, so and that energy's got to come from someplace. So that's yes. taking it out of the economy because it's not like just digging it out of the ground. Exactly. If we're doing that, if that's solar powered or nuclear powered, that's we're, we're not bubbling over with solar nuclear. So that means something that was going to go to, I don't know, the, some other infrastructure thing or someone heating someone's home is going into an airplane. Yeah. I think with any kind of discussion, um, when you're talking about hydrogen and you're comparing it to other sources, you also have to couple that with using smarter configurations so that the aircraft with all the efficiency losses, right, is still comparable to to other other forms of transport. So, and I think the, there's improving the designs that we already have. So. There are things like blended bodies. Uh, there are things just just having a tube with even longer wings. Those get us thirty percent ish. So some people say like twenty something. Some some numbers are higher. But let's say for this conversation, um, we're talking about twenty to thirty percent more efficient aircraft. Is the reason people wouldn't have done that before? Is that the plane is going to be slower and and with fossil fuels you don't need to get these efficiencies? There are a couple of reasons, right? So the first one here is when someone's designing an aircraft, the fuel efficient fuel efficiency is just one factor. So they're actually considering the total cost of ownership of the vehicle. So mm-hmm. when you're doing any kind of study, right, there's sometimes a most fuel efficient vehicle, but to get that efficiency, the, the vehicle would have to be more expensive. So okay. people are selecting vehicles that are not necessarily the most fuel efficient, but are the most profitable for the given application that you're you're going after. And the next bit here is are the requirements that you have on the, the aircraft. So when you start talking about flying at Mach 0.7, Mach 0.8, you give up some efficiency because you are no longer talking about like mixed laminar and turbulent flow. You have transitions off, off the wing because the wings are swept back. You can't have them as long. So there are structural considerations. And by the way, is it Mach 0.7.8? That's regular airplane flight. Yeah, that's Most regular speed. airplane okay. airplane flight. What we're used so, to. Yeah, what we're used to. So you're probably familiar with things like your commuter turboprops. Those vehicles, efficiency-wise, they have longer wings. They're slower. They might operate in different regions. You could potentially optimize a, an airplane with unswept wings that had longer wings to drastically improve the per-passenger, I guess, mileage or just the absolute range of the air, aircraft. So there are options like that, right? So if you look at any of the world record vehicles that did around the world flights or uh, aircraft like the Solar Impulse, you could see that the physical look of the vehicle is very different from what you'd see on an airliner, which is trying to minimize the cost of the airline, cost of the airline, both the pilots, the operations, and also offer a product where you're getting from one point to another very quickly. Going back to the Wright brothers to the 747, then that tells me that right now the changes to the design of the plane aren't new. There may be engineering issues because it hasn't been done in practice, but it's not like we're fundamentally finding out new ways of making planes or wings no. more efficient. It's just we haven't specifically tried to get it efficient in this particular way before. Yeah. And I, I would say that anything that you see in the next 10 or 20 years, you probably have seen in some form or fashion 10 or 20 years before that, right? So it takes so long to we're so Elroy, the place I work at, we are unmanned, right? And then the vehicle's small. So you have very little risk to people on board. 
and the vehicle's smaller. So uh, if something happens in flight, there's less risk to people on the ground. So if you're talking about a large manned vehicle with 120 passengers on board, you have to be very certain in the, in the technology that you put in it to say that it is a safer flight. And there generally needs to be a long track record either in some other operation. So like the, so the tube with wings, for example, has been around since before World War II, right? And people have been making these incremental improvements. So when we talk about drastically increasing efficiency by half or full order of magnitude, you start bringing in things that have never been really tried on the aircraft. So let's say we did, there was some method to just a new type of airplane, no tail or super long wings, different type of control scheme. You'd still have to prove that that's safe and you'll still have to have some track record because when you fly something, it isn't short, right? To to so it's just testing and testing and testing. Testing and testing and testing. Of, even if there's a design that's perfect, it, it would take decades to get it into production safely. Yeah. And, so like if I had a design now, right, for something like that, that was, that gave you that efficiency, it's a decade, right? But obviously you're not going to start out on the big vehicle. You'll probably start on something else. So there's development project for that, which takes a long time. And then there's, there are the steps leading up for, to that, which are unmanned vehicles, scale prototypes that also take time. So in terms of, okay, what if we just had fixed energy and let's say we just, we just made our airplanes more efficient, you still have a very long time, multiple decades of testing concepts and manned vehicles until you get to the point where you're seeing, for example, blended wing body airplane, 1980s. We know that would increase efficiency to be like 20 or 30%. We don't see it yet on a multiple passenger aircraft. So we, we did hydrogen. Then we talked about some gains in what the, the path to gains in efficiencies. Mm-hmm. So I want to get to ethanol and I want to get to Greenland. <laughs> Jumping topics. Does ethanol work or does the biofuels work? That is actually not something I, I know a ton about. I think we have to ask ourselves that when we do biofuels, where are we getting the biological material, right? So like the corn is corn or some other product. I don't really have the background to talk about. Okay, let's leave that. But if, <laughs> if I understand right, you're, I mean, if we... If our population is growing to where we have to use every square foot of arable land for producing food to feed us, yeah. then we don't have any to spare to that corn has to be has to feed people, not go into airplanes. Yes, exactly. Right. So you could either use it to feed people, you could either use it for airplanes. There are other ways of getting biological material. People have been talking about things like switchgrass. You've heard you might know a little bit more about this, but things like algae. There, there are other ways. I'm not particularly an expert in the kind of the impacts of using biofuels. You can have things like biodiesel, which can run uh, your conventional 737, your, your Airbus. You have things like when you get to altitude, the fuel diesels gel. I do think there were examples of commercial aircraft using biofuels. So I think Biofuels can power power aircraft. The question is, is this scalable to the number of flights that we have on the commercial scale? I think for smaller aircraft, yes, you could you could definitely do that. Smaller meaning 10 passengers? Smaller meaning like small unmanned vehicles okay. or uh, where you have very small operations. You're not using a lot of fuel. I could see that, but I don't know how these biofuels necessarily scale with the with the scope of commercial aviation. So then on to Greenland then. Last time you were saying that you envisioned that we could be flying North America to Europe, probably stopping over along the way. Yeah. And oh, I'm sorry, battery powered. Yeah. So I think with, let's say that there is a 2Xing of energy density, right? You're talking about 1,000 instead of 
500 miles, there is an improvement in configuration. So you see some electric aircraft companies making aircraft that the the figure merit is lift to drag, right? So your 737 is about 17 or 16. And you're, you're talking about companies that are saying that they're able to do things in the 20s or mid 20s or getting onto 30. So let's say you implemented all of these changes, then you're at the range of 1,000, 1,500, right? So you might be able to potentially do regional flights. So you're talking about the eastern seaboard of the U.S. or western seaboard of the U.S., like a Charlotte to like a New York is like 500 miles. Or you could do things where you stop over between continents if you were on an all-battery regime. So let's say a Greenland or an Iceland. This is what they were doing back in the 30s and 40s before you had these uh, long-range nonstop aircraft. So you're, you're talking about 1930s, 1940s range performance, which is a, a little, little shocking. But I think if you wanted to do an all-electric that was making those ranges, you would probably end up uh, stopping over during your flight. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Well, so I'm thinking that um, that means right now you can go from anywhere on the East Coast. Well, you can go, as you said, you can go from anywhere to anywhere, but uh, just across the Atlantic, you can go from basically anywhere on the East Coast easily to anywhere in Europe. But if you're stopping over in Greenland, suddenly there's a chokehold, there's a, there's a bottleneck. Yeah. And suddenly you're limited by the number of flights that can go through there. I don't know if there are other like Canary Islands. I don't think they would. They're really close to Africa, I think. Yeah. And I'm wondering if the Pacific probably doesn't have enough islands along the way to jump o- to do all this jumping. Yeah. And I think the Pacific, what, you have Hawaii um, kind of halfway. You have Guam, the Atlantic. I think you have a problem. So one, if you're doing, if you're stopping between legs, you have to worry about your inventory of vehicles and you have to be able to charge your aircraft fairly quickly. So when we start talking about higher battery capacities or even aircraft that uh, deplane and replane. Mm-hmm. So I get off of Greenland, get on, walk across yeah. the aisle. Across get the onto another back. aircraft. Yeah. yeah you, you have to have that inventory of aircraft, right? And it's something that I'd love to see, right, is, hey, what if, if you're an air student out there, what if you did a study or you simulate a bunch of these where you're looking at networks of stops where you're getting from one point to another and the kind of the implications of like charging and, and whatnot. There's also a lot of manufacture of a lot of planes that are, aren't being used. So there's embedded carbon in that depending on how it's manufactured. I think there's a potential to have like additional inventory, right? So one issue with batteries is that you have to charge them. So as I mentioned earlier, you have a very large amount of energy in a small, small area. And if you become even more energy dense, if you don't drastically increase the efficiency at which you get that energy out or you store it, you generate more heat, right? So Typically, most of the cells on the market, you want to be charging them over the course of an hour. Um, you could charge them much faster. There are people who have done studies on this between about like 30 and 80% of the, the pack, but getting from getting that last 10 or 20% takes a lot longer. So there, there are items like that. And then if you've ever operated a drone or a small UAS or even some of these EV tolls, you also have this problem of you've charged the pack, right? And then now you have to cool the pack down before you operate it because you 
pull a lot of energy out of the pack during takeoff and cruise. So there's, I wouldn't know how much thermal mass. So once you make something bigger, it stores heat better. And once we're talking about powers in the megawatts, <laughs> not in the hundreds of kilowatts, you have a lot more thermal capacity. So one of the other questions I would, I would ask is, how would you pull that much heat from such a large battery system? And how would you pull it quickly and efficiently such that you could recharge a vehicle very quickly where you're maximizing the range? So you're, you're not just putting in a little bit and you're taking off. Oh man, in Greenland, if only we hadn't just melted all those glaciers, we'd have the glaciers. But Yeah, we would have ice water. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a hard problem. And there's a lot of research and a lot of design that needs to be to be put into this long range problem. And a lot, many, many aeronautical engineers have, many of us have seen, seen this problem, looked at the technology that we have, and we've started to say, okay, what about hydrogen? What about um, hydroelectric? So if you're on a full, fully battery network, there are a lot of operational issues that you still have to figure out. And that's, that would be years of testing or operating to, to prove it out. So now I want to get personal. Knowing what you know about flight and battery-powered flight, before when we spoke, you talked about growing up on an island mm-hmm. and flying was a, a great interest of yours, a passion of yours. And so now looking forward with the limits, with the capabilities, how do you look forward to your personal flying for the next couple of decades? Are we going to have, how, how different is it going to be than today? That's a very good question, right? So. With everything we know and with everything we know about kind of the mission's footprint of flying, and then we also have some of the economic benefits of flying, and we also have people with families from all over the place. So myself included there, I have family in London, I have family in Arizona, have them in New York, have them in Canada. And one of the one of the the items here is how do we keep people connected? So during COVID, people have had deaths in their families. People have been, even myself, like I haven't been able to, let's say, visit grandparents or, or whatnot who are kind of later in life, right? So I think there is an emotional component of it where flying is kind of our connection to the world. And then from a per professional or kind of personal perspective, I seeing aircraft, seeing them fly, seeing something that you don't exactly have like full access to is and working to gain access to it is something is something that I had to work towards, right? But then you get to this era where we had a boom where we had cheap, low-cost fossil fuels. We have emitted them into the air. And you're now the generation where you said, well, I would love to continue the way we've, we've gone for the last six decades because I want to do those cool things too. I want to, I want to see airplanes go supersonic again or all these other items. And it's a different paradigm, right? Whether or not you're going to see mass supersonic transport again or whether or not you're going to see the kind of the same scale of air travel is really dependent on policy. So whether or not we put a price on carbon, right? Or whether or not governments start saying, hey, if you're you're going between New York and like DC, take the train. <laughs> and then there's also the the impetus. So if we're saying that we need to drastically reduce carbon over the next tens of decades and aviation moves slowly. It's the question is what are we doing now and what solid investment are we putting into this such that we can have the drastic improvements that we need. Otherwise it just it feels like a bummer. <laughs> it, it feels it feels like you you have worked towards something or you're working with something and when you get there it has you you get to the park or you get to you're open your food right and then someone has already eaten half of it 
and they're like, here, here you go. And I think that's kind of the feeling uh, that I get sometimes. It's like, it's, it's kind of being, it's being used in a way or abused in a way that uh, now that it's our turn, you don't really have it anymore. So, so you're saying that you grow up, you're like, oh, I want to fly. I want to participate in this. I want to push the limit and develop mm-hmm. new things. And then it turns out we've polluted so much that if we keep doing what we've been doing, it's going to just keep killing people, right? Rising sea levels and things like that. Yeah. And so you say, well, I still want to do this. Okay. There are, there is open territory in unmanned vehicles, but it's not quite the same thing as creating the next Concorde, which yeah. would be really cool. But, but that may be technologically, if possible, far off in the future. Yeah. And it's funny, right? As you fly faster and faster, right? So progress in aviation is being like measured with how fast you travel. You get, (laughs) you get less and less efficient, right? So it's, yes, there are these things in the, the far future that I would have loved to see, right? But when you look at the physics of the problems and you look at the problems that we have today, you you kind of put yourself in a situation that you realize that, hey, there are changes that we have to do as kind of an industry. So in kind of my line of work, I'm always looking for ways to improve efficiency. I am always, I'm always uh, barking up the tree of, hey, can we improve the fuel efficiency here? Can we increase, increase the generator output and use weight, waste less heat or something? That is how you influence it kind of like on your level when you're you're working with some of the technology but i do worry a little bit in terms of whether or not the world will be as connected in a few decades right um whether or not like you will whether or not laws will be going to place that reduce your ability to see family visit family or well my do you mean they might say there's a law that says you can't do more than a certain number of flights per year or, or the costs or, go higher right so let's okay, say so not it, legislation that you can't travel but yeah. legislation not but i mean the prices might go up even without legislation yeah the prices the prices will probably go up without legislation i think it is it's one of these things where many of us are live in areas where some of the some of the definitions of kind of success have been you learn, get educated. There's this very strong brain brain drain between Afro Latin areas and, and other areas in the world where people go from those regions and they go to larger hubs in the world, which have these, these, these innovations or they have, they have more jobs, right. And people kind of coalesce, into those communities, but also many of those people going to those communities. So like, let's say you look at San Francisco, one of the problems with San Francisco is that everyone in San Francisco is not from San Francisco and they're from somewhere else. So like you, you're around there for the holidays and you find out most of the people that you know are not actually in the area. So there's a little bit of, you end up in a hub and you're disconnected kind of from the rest of the world or your world or the people you grew up with. And the question is, how do you build community that isn't are in those areas? And two, like, how do you maintain your community if you go to these other other regions, or you could you could distribute more of of that type of work or more of that economic empowerment to many of these regions, so that you don't necessarily have to have this much uh, kind of back and forth between between the regions. So where were you born again in the Caribbean? I was, I'm an interesting story. I was born in New York. I grew up in partially in the Caribbean. I moved between a couple U.S. cities in kind of the middle school, high school, cool um, time period. So I've been, I wouldn't say all over, but I've been to a few places. And I've lived in a few places. So what you're talking about is really personal for you. I mean, you're not yeah, talking about abstract. Personal. You're talking about your own personal no, experience, your own it, family. Yeah, it, it is, right? And I think one of the, when I talk about the price of flying, right? So when you're early career, you can't necessarily afford to, you can't afford travel as much, right? So let's say you wanted to go to the UK to visit someone. You can't, 
you do it once and maybe you do that once in like five years or four years or three years. And when we start talking about like drastic inc- increases in the cost of air travel or even, and by the way, I'm not saying this stuff is negative. I'm just saying that like this will eventually happen and you start talking about increases or carbon taxes or just increasing costs overall, you still have to start asking yourself, okay, I am this far from everything. Can I afford to, to kind of do that lifestyle or maintain those connections? And I think that's something, I think that's something that we probably have to think about, right? Because we can't just, there is this march upwards where we're just, more people are flying more and more. We're using more fuel to fly more and more, but we're also saying that we can't use as much fuel in the future because of the the impact. So something has to change, right? So what is that? And I can't really, I don't know. And I think that's that's hard when you when you see your your life and your world and then you see the trend the like macro trend over the next 20, 30 years, what's going to happen? So a lot of people would hope that you would have that you in the thick of the pushing the envelope, and I think this is where the actual term comes from, of I think a lot of people want to say, but electric planes will solve the problem. But you're in the middle of it and you're not that's not apparent to you. And if it ever is, it's not going to be within the next few decades. It's not apparent to, to, to me. And I, it's not apparent to many people in the industry and many experts. But here's the thing. I think if any one of us sees the path to it, you're going to hear about it very quickly, right? So everyone wants this to happen. Everyone sees the writing on the wall. Everyone in this industry is looking for ways to increase efficiency. Everyone is looking to use less fuel. I think most people in kind of the design realm are are conscious of these issues. I mean, they're they're pretty intelligent. They're they're designing aircraft, right? So, I think for me, I work in this kind of design space. I am working on making a more efficient vertical takeoff landing aircraft for these longer ranges, right? And I think those advancements may find themselves in something else in the future. And I think that the folks working on these larger airplanes, and I think also people who are making startups right now in in this space are really trying hard to see how they could push this, right? And we're going to try. <laughs> like as an industry, I think people are going to try. And I think it's it would be a shame if they didn't. And it'd also be a shame if as a society, because these things take so long, they require so, so much investment. If as a society, we give up in terms of trying to break that boundary or find, find that, that combination of items that allows us to kind of sustain this connectivity, that physical connectivity, not digital connectivity that we have right now. So I'm excited. Where I've come, I talked before about my model of Wright Brothers to 747, where we are now, we should be able to reach something unimaginable also. Mm -hmm. And through what I've learned, I don't think that I'm going to live to see that happen. And I'm questioning if anyone ever will. People trying hard doesn't mean that it's possible. Yeah. I mean, we can try to run a mile in, in a minute and we might, but we might not. And so when you said, so I started imagining what happens if we can't fly all over the place all the time as we do today. Yeah. And the key thing of what I heard you say, something that jumped out at me was when you were talking about your family in all these different places. And well, we lived in a world in which we had certain assumptions that flying didn't hurt the environment as much nearly, or it wouldn't affect our lives as much as we thought it would. And that assumption isn't holding anymore. Fires in California, fires in, um, in Greece, and we always see the front page news headlines. And you said a different paradigm. If we have a different paradigm, if we try to stick with the values of the old system, and when the world changes, then we're really, we have to fight against it. But if we simply go into the new paradigm, 
I mean, people live for almost all of human history without being able to fly at all, let alone at the speeds and convenience that we have today. Mm-hmm. And I imagine we're just simply not going to fly. Most people will go back. I mean, as it is today, 80%, 90% of people on the earth don't fly. Mm-hmm. And we who do fly are extremely economically empowered. Yeah. And, and, and it's amazing how much people don't realize that most people that I know feel like everyone flies. I, I don't think they get So when they say, well, it's only 2% of global emissions, it's not that big of a deal. It's 2% of global emissions by a tiny fraction of people. So yeah. if you say no one can fly, most people in the world are like, it's like telling them you can't fly, you can't drive your Rolls Royce either because they don't have that either. Yeah. And I think this makes me think of just the economic distribution in the world right now. So we have a very small fraction of the world's population holding so much of the wealth. And then you have things like transmigration, which leads to leads to items. You have also you have so much concentrated in such a small group of group of people. And the question is, okay, if everyone gets to our standard of living, what will happen to the world? And the answer sometimes is that no, everyone cannot live at that. Oh wait, hold I want to sorry to interrupt, but our standard of consumption, we're not necessarily uh, happier. Yes, our standard of consumption. I've dropped my emissions by over 90%, and yeah. I'm happier now than I was before. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Or some standard of consumption, is that a standard of living? And the other, the other point here is, can the rest of the world have a consistent standard of consumption and also have a consistent standard of living? And also, economic power doesn't necessarily mean the standard of living that you have. It just means economic power. So I think this is a multifactored problem where every th- there's, there's so much in the world that is leading to consumption. There's also so much in the world that is just wrong. And how can we right the wrongs that we have right now, but also keep the world cons- sustainable? Because like, I want to see I want to see everyone have what we have. And I also want to have what other people in the world have, which we're missing a lot in America (laughs) that others have in the world. These are things like community. These are things like some places have much better work-life balance, right? Some places people are just less stressed out, right? So I think it's it's just improving on everyone's standards at the same time, reducing our consumption of fossil fuels so that we have a world to live on. So So when I say we're not emitting so much carbon dioxide and plenty of other pollution, and for that matter, displacing people from their land to get the oil underneath and what we're doing to the Gulf and Alaska. So I switch over to, okay, we're not flying around all the time. And I think, okay, so what does life look like there? And I realize I don't move away from my family, which has for me resulted in now there's people that I visit and people I don't, the ones who are nearby I visit, and I spend much more time with them. And I'm actually closer with family. I'm closer with community. I now view planes flying is, to me, besides the pollution aspect of it, there's a big tearing apart of community aspect to it, that what you described in San Francisco, it feels like everywhere, that everyone's everywhere and no one's anywhere yeah. as like a permanent base. I mean, everyone's somewhere, but I mean, there people, the way I think about it, since litter is such a big deal for me, is that if I know I'm going to travel away to some exotic location, it doesn't matter to me so much if, my, if where I live gets covered in litter because I'm going to get away. And I don't really care as much about my local place. And, you know, that's a stand-in for participating in politics and things like that. And then, but then I go far away and like Bali is covered with plastic too. Yeah. So everywhere, it's like community to me, flying and community are not, they don't have to be juxtaposed, but they tend to more, I think the more people fly, probably the less time they spend with family and the less problem, the less they solve local problems. So I envision, I mean, not having flown since 2016, I'm, the longer I go without flying, the more I probably will never fly again, not because out of some abstract environmental cause, because I don't want to. I mean, I, I'm also learning to sail, so I expect to get to Europe at some point. Sailing's fun. Sailing's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is interesting. How do we build communities that are closer to us and we need to 
travel less and then how do we work closer to ourselves with those communities and then there's also kind of the specialization of the economy right so you don't necessarily have the experts in the right places at the right time i think the pandemic has taught us something about that it's taught us something about remote work as well i do worry a little bit about being someone with kind of with family spread all over all over the this hemisphere it effectively remaining physically connected to them that is tough and i think that's tough, tough for a lot of people and i think much of it is the western lifestyle and much of it is the western model of things like education and the even the companies that we work at um, have all kind of have all stretched these networks very thin and it'll be interesting to see whether or not we could bring those back together and require less travel and we could still have those things if we just use them far less right so that's kind of the trillion dollar question right is like how do we do that and how do we keep this very valuable resource that we have uh for for the next set of kids coming up so that they could also um, work in airplanes or even fly or or uh, work with these things so i'm swayed by this series of videos that i'll have to post i think it's a guy who's dutch but he has a very american accent but they talk about how Amsterdam and, and various cities in Holland. I didn't know this until I saw this, that in the 70s and 60s, Amsterdam was overrun with cars. And they did a lot of planning. You know, I, I associate Amsterdam with bikes, all of Holland with lots of biking. And that was all conscious decisions to move. And it's quieter and people get around. And I imagine that type of engineering to make it more human scale. Like I could see the world... Let's see, this analogy is, I guess, the one that's in my head now. If Amsterdam went from choked with cars to quiet with bikes, then could the world go from choked with airplanes to, I mean, a bike obviously can't go anywhere near as fast as a car, although in a city can. And would there be some equivalent? Now that's the analogy, I guess, that's in my head now. Okay. So just, we had a technical issue and we're back, but we're going to wrap up quickly. And you just said something while we weren't recording that I thought was good to close on. Yeah. So I would say that it feels very, it feels like I don't like to use this term. It feels like a bummer that the world, I've always imagined the world in 50, 30 years as more physically connected than, than it is now. And the idea that it's going to be less so simply just due to the environmental issues just doesn't feel great. I think what everyone in the electric aviation industry is doing is trying to make that connectivity uh, happen or at least maintain the same level connectivity through newer technology that we have now for uh, the people in the future. So I want to innovate. I want to see the innovations that allow us to maintain that. But at the same time, we have to have some level of realism and we also have to figure out how we require, require this uh, less. So that's more or less, more or less a summary from, from my end. Well, I appreciate you bringing us to the frontier of battery-powered non-fossil fuel aviation. And let's not forget that you're, where you are with the unmanned is, it sounds like that's super fast development and solving a lot of problems that have never been solved before. Yeah. And where we are with the unmanned system is that we are trying these things on a vehicle that we can fly now and quickly. And when we have these, when you see aircraft with these things flying, it creates precedent for other folks who want to use this technology for manned vehicles such that you can see the steady pace of advancement such that you could get to your your passenger aircraft with a hybrid electric system right it has to start somewhere and these small passenger or unmanned aircraft is where it starts and i am very curious to see 
once we finish with this project and once we become operational, what is the next thing going to be? And what are people going to build off of what we've done? I think that's what the listener wants to know, probably. And also with this efficient transportation, how it's going to affect them. So let's leave it at that cliffhanger for the next time we have you back. All right. Tarek Weeks, thank you very much. All right. Bye-bye. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.